Please be seated. And as you do so, turn with me to First John and chapter 3. First John and chapter 3. We will read the first six verses of that chapter. First John and chapter 3. If you are there, I commence reading. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We will end our reading there for now. It's been quite a while since we were last in this book. Um, I had since gone on leave, and when I came back last weekend, I opted to do something else just for last weekend. And we've been making our way for a while now through this epistle under the theme of assurance of salvation. And this is not something that was just coming out of guesswork because John himself, later on in this epistle, goes on to say that the reason why I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, it is so that you may know that you have eternal life. So clearly that's why John wrote. This book is meant to be a means of confirming us who are true believers that indeed we are the true children of God. And in that peace and assurance that we might know vibrancy and joy despite all the challenges that we continue to face in the world. The point is that God does not wait for us to die before he really confirms us whether we are going to heaven or not. No, he does so at the point at which he converts us. It's real. From that point onwards, we should be able to say, I'm a child of God. I'm going to heaven when I die. And thus, we should be able to share with other people the good news 
that Jesus Christ truly saves. We're currently in the third chapter, and in the first section of that third chapter, which is from verse 1 to verse 3, uh, the Apostle John is wanting us to, to celebrate the fact of the position that God has already given us, that we are already God's children. He says there in verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And he goes on to say, and so we are. So he was celebrating that fact. But then from verse 4 downwards, uh, the Apostle John deliberately spends some time in order to, to cut, as it were, a very clean line in the midst of human beings so that we can know whether we really belong to those who should be celebrating or we belong to those who should not be celebrating. And the knife that he uses to cut through the sea of humanity, as it were, is the knife of moral transformation. Moral transformation. In other words, it's not simply that you have now become an excitable individual, but it is the fact that there has been a moral change in you. You are now a person who lives a morally good life rather than a morally bad life. That's the knife that he is using. And he introduced it the last time that we, we were together and we we're looking at verse 4. He introduced it by simply saying that if you are living in sin, you are living in rebellion against God's law. Period. If you are living in sin, you are living in rebellion against God and his law. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, he says in verse 4, also practices lawlessness. And he goes on to say sin is lawlessness. In other words, what drives you is not what God says. No. What drives you is what you want what you are passionate about, what you hunger after, what you thirst after, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what the law of God says, you still go for it. And that's where he begins. Because what he really wants to say is that if that's true of you, then clearly you should not be celebrating that God has made you his child. And he's got very clear reasons why all the way from verse 4 down to verse 10. In verse 5 and 6 where we are looking this morning, John begins where we ought to always begin. And it is with God himself. The nature of God. The purpose of God. When we are clear about that, then we begin to judge ourselves. That's the way we start. It's like exams. You don't just decide, no, no, no. Today, I'm going to study mathematics. 
so that tomorrow I can sit mathematics. You, you don't think like that. You begin by saying, may I see the exam timetable? In other words, you begin with the examiner. What exam has he set? And then when you know the exam he has set, then you begin to prepare. And then you say, what day and time is this exam? And then you make sure that that day and time, you are there. Many years ago, a friend of mine, I was still working in the mines then in Mufrila, uh, had traveled to Kitwe to go and sit his exams. And he, he had studied, he had done everything, and now he was busy polishing up the final screws, tightening them up. When a friend of his walked into his study place and said to him, Mwana, where were you? He said, I've been here. Why? He says, we're looking for you in the exam room. Oh, the exam is tomorrow, he said. Friend says, no, we've just come from there. Obviously, he did what anyone should do, pulled out the exam timetable, looked. Yes, he had that day right, but he didn't realize that that day was today and not tomorrow. With all the sweating he had done, it was now pointless. Jumped onto a minibus and made his way back to Muflira. Came into my room completely broken, shattered. I had to spend a lot of time comforting him that God is sovereign. That's what we do with exams, don't we? We begin with the examiner, that which he has done, and then we prepare ourselves accordingly. Well, it's the same way with respect to the issue of salvation. We begin with, who is this God? What has he done? What is his purpose? What is his nature? And then from there, we work backwards to ourselves and we say, am I fitting into it? If I'm fitting into it, then yes, I can say that I am his child. I don't just stubbornly decide this is the way it must be. This is what it's going to be without thinking about God first. Otherwise, you too will be there on the judgment day terribly disappointed. So this is how John begins. Verse 5. He says there, you know that he, referring to Jesus Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He's basically saying we must be clear that Jesus came to destroy sin and he himself is utterly sinless. Let's begin there. Now clearly, when he says you know, he is assuming that you have been taught about Jesus Christ. That you have read about him in the Bible. There are at least four solid books that are squarely concerning this Jesus. At least in the completed canon that you and I have received today. 
But then there's also the entire Old Testament that continued to speak into the future, into the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, if you have read all these, surely there are a few things you know. The first is his pre-existence. It says there, you know that he appeared. And that phrase, he appeared, suggests that he's already there. So Jesus Christ coming into the world through Mary was not the beginning of his life. He is the pre-existent son of God. He's been there for all eternity and now he, as it were, opened the curtains and walked onto human history. That's the first we know, that he appeared. The second is his saving mission. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin. What does he mean by taking away? Well, there are two senses in which we are to understand Jesus taking away sins. The first, which um, John the Baptist used, is in terms of taking away the guilt of sin so that God may declare us righteous. We see him saying that in John chapter 1, if you can quickly turn there, John chapter 1 and verse 29. Not first John, but the gospel of John. Chapter 1. We read in verse 9, sorry, into verse 29, these words. The next day, he, referring to John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when he uses the picture of the Lamb of God, he's clearly pointing backwards to the sacrificial system where a person who had been guilty of sin would take a lamb or any other unblemished prescribed animal, take that to the temple or previous to that, take that to the tabernacle and confess his sin to the priest. And then the priest would take that lamb, chop off its head, pour its blood into a bowl and take that bowl full of blood and sprinkle it within the, the temple, um, the holy place. And what that would be signifying is that this person who had sinned against God, God's wrath was therefore hanging over his head, has brought a substitute, and that substitute has suffered wrath has died in his place so that he can now go scot-free. His sin has been taken away in this animal that has died. And so, in the picture of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it is that instead of this actual animal 
Jesus has been sent by God to take our place so that the wrath that ought to come upon us has come upon him. He has died in the place of sinners and consequently has taken away the guilt of our sins. He's been punished in our place. That's the first sense. But clearly, John is going beyond this when he speaks about Jesus taking away sins or our sins. He's thinking more in terms of the moral effect of that act that we've just referred to on the cross. The moral effect is that of cleaning up the sinners as well in terms of their lives as they go out there, the kind of lives they begin to live after they put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we see this from Paul's writing to Titus. Let's quickly go there. Titus and chapter 2. Titus and chapter 2. You've got First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and then a little book that just comprises a page or two called Titus. Titus and chapter 2. This is what the Apostle Paul says. I'll begin from verse 11, though my interest is in verse 14. Titus chapter 2, I begin from verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what is this grace doing? Listen to this. It is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It is teaching us to say no to sin, he is saying. And what is it doing in the opposite realm? It is also teaching us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our glorious hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this grace of God, on one hand, enables us to look temptation and sin and say no to it. And then on the other, it enables us to hunger and thirst, to pursue self-control, righteousness, and so on and so forth. This grace of God through Jesus Christ. But notice how he now puts it in verse 14 referring to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us back from all lawlessness. Remember, sin is lawlessness. He has died to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he, he buys us back from sin, buys us back from lawlessness, and consequently makes us a people that are zealous for good works, for an upright, godly, holy, righteous life. 
He is cleansing a people through his death on Calvary. So that death has not only dealt with our guilt, it has also dealt a death blow to the power of sin in our lives. Jesus Christ cleans us up. That's what John has in mind when he's speaking about him who has appeared in order to take away sin. He's taken away the guilt of sin. He's also taken away the power of sin. And thus enabling us to live a morally upright life. And then he adds back in First John chapter 3. He adds the phrase, and in him there is no sin. Why is he doing that? It's because later on, he'll be talking about people claiming to abide in Christ. We'll come to that in a moment. And he's basically wanting us to already keep it in mind that can two walk together unless they are agreed. If this Jesus who appeared has no sin in him, and he now dwells in you. And you also dwell in him. If he has no sin in him. And then you are living in sin. There should be a, a terrible war taking place inside there. Because two can only walk together in tranquility. If they are living on the same moral basis, moral value. So he's wanting us to keep it in mind that this one has no sin in him. He is morally pure. So really the question we ought to be asking ourselves is, do we know these two facts? Do we? His saving mission and his sinless nature. Do, do we know these facts? Are we really persuaded about them? Because that's the way it's beginning there. He's saying, you know that he appeared to take away sin. And in him there is no sin. Uh, do we know that? Is this the Jesus we have been taught? Who came into the world not simply to, to heal the sick. And to, to feed the hungry. And to, to raise the dead. But he came to deal a death blow to sin. Once and for all. Break it down. Destroy it in human hearts. And free those who are in its bondage. So that they can live a righteous life. Is that the Jesus we have come to know? Because, friends, if, if, if we still are thinking about Jesus purely in terms of I'm sick, he will heal me, I'm hungry, he'll give me some bread, and purely at a social level, we need to get back to the Bible, and we need to read the Bible again and again and again, and especially the epistles. Because it's very easy for us to, to limit ourselves to the gospel, to the pictures that actually are meant to point to the spiritual reality. 
And all we see is, well, Jesus healed the blind here. I'm blind, he ought to heal me. Jesus fed 5,000 people. I'm hungry. Surely he should give me some bread. But we fail to see that when we read into the epistles, all those were meant to be physical pictures to point to the spiritual reality that Jesus opens spiritual eyes. Jesus feeds the spiritually hungry. Jesus raises the spiritually dead. Jesus really saves from sin. And you need to be persuaded about that. Because even today, the average message you are hearing from so many churches is all about the physical and social. They're no longer touching the issues of the moral. So that men and women can go from living in sin the whole week and still be comfortable in church. Because the Jesus being preached is one who is merely giving out physical substance, throwing it out like confetti for the first person to grab and run away with, however they are living. I want to say, friends, that's a misrepresentation of the mission of Jesus Christ. He came primarily to destroy sin in our lives. And in him, there is no sin. Have you today become thoroughly convinced about that? Well, if you have, there are at least two serious implications. Two very serious implications. And these implications have a major bearing on the subject of assurance of salvation. John puts it in the form of two impossibilities which we must face squarely. Two impossibilities. Let's read about them. In 1 John 3, verse 6. I'll begin with verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Here it is now. Two impossibilities. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known I think the first thing we need to deal with is the question keeps on sinning. What is that? I say it because when you read verse 4, you can't miss that that is the issue. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Again, we find it in more or less the same words in verse 6. No one who abides in, in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, various versions use different phrases. Some of them simply speak in terms of those who sin should not say that they abide in him. But what is the picture? What, what is John really saying here? I think, first of all, we must be clear by now, if we've read this epistle, that John is not 
referring to simply a sin committed. Because as far as the Bible is concerned, anyone who says he has not sinned is only deceiving himself. We see that clearly in chapter 1. Let's go there. Chapter 1. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In other words, as far as the Bible is concerned, we are all sinners. If you're a Christian, you're a sinner. If you're not a Christian, you're a sinner. So then what on earth is John speaking about? Because he's clearly making a demarcation between one kind of sinner and another. And this other kind of sinner is saying we are all in that category, everybody. But he's saying in this other kind of sinner, not everybody is there. In fact, whoever is in it is not a child of God, is still going to hell. Where do we draw the line? Well, clearly, John is concerned at the level of the heart, the level of the inner attitude towards sin. There are two kinds of sinners. There are those for whom it's a way of life. It's a habitual life of sin. They wake up in the morning and they're thinking in terms of where they are going to go in order to have another dose of sin. If it's sexual sin, there is that particular lady or there's that particular man and they are not married and the person begins to say, okay, so where can we meet so that we can have another round of sex outside marriage? It's their way of life. They plan it, they make the phone calls, they book the place or whatever else it might be and they go and enjoy themselves. They indulge themselves and the following day they're saying, wow, we had a good time. When next is it going to happen? That's the, that's the non-Christian life. It's habitual. It's planned. They want to make money. They know exactly what to do. They begin conniving about how they can make money unrighteously. How they will twist the rules and laws of the workplace, of government, or whatever else it might be, to steal to defraud, to swindle. They make their money. They even hit each other on the pounds. Give me five. Done it. Let's go enjoy this money that we have made. It's their way of life. They live in secret affairs, yes, because they don't want the world outside to know, but they are enjoying it behind the scenes. Well, the Christian also sins, but he falls into sin. Doesn't plan it. 
doesn't say this is the way I want in order to have my own way. It is the, I'll use strong words here, it is the silliness, the stupidity of thinking I can play near the fire and not get burnt. So they are careless. They get very close to the edge. And often they've managed to come back without falling in. But on this particular occasion, in the hour of temptation, at that point they failed to resist and they fall into sin. And here's the difference. When it's all over, they deeply regret it. How could I have done this? They first of all confessed to the Lord they confessed to their co-conspirators it was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. Forgive me. Lord, forgive me. Their hearts are convicted by what has taken place. And these are the ones who run back to God, confess their sins. And according to John here, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the Christian. And you know what they do? They put a billboard there. And it's written, not again. I'm not going to go this way again. It's been terrible. Paid for it. That's not the way to go. That's the Christian. And so when John is, is making the differentiation, we must be clear that this is the differentiation he's making. Those who live in it habitually is a way of sin. They plan it, they go and do it, they enjoy it, and they want to enjoy it again. He calls them those who make a practice of sinning. He refers to them as those who keep on sinning. What is he saying about such people? Well, here's the first impossibility. It is that if you abide in Jesus, you cannot be like that. It is impossible if you abide in Jesus to continue living in sin. It is not possible. Why? Well, the secret is in that word, abide in him. Remember, he has just said that Jesus, in him, there is no sin. The way in which Jesus saves us from sin is not simply that he convicts us and awakens us to the reality of sin, but he also, in saving us, immerses us into himself. He unites us with himself so that we are one with him. We are united to him. So his life begins to flow through us. And since he is holy, he is righteous, the life that is flowing through us is the life of Jesus. And it is a righteous life. Therefore, it is impossible for a real Christian to keep on sinning. It's impossible. And it's not me saying it. It's John saying it here. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. It is impossible. 
Now you can argue with me if you want. But you wait until the judgment day. And you say to God, well, I was a Christian, but I enjoyed my sin. And you say to you, such a creature doesn't exist on the planet. And you're not the first one. It's impossible. The second impossibility is this. That if you continue sinning, it's impossible to say that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's impossible. Listen to him. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now the seeing here is obviously not physical because there are many people who saw Jesus and still went to hell. Judas is one of them. So it's not physical seeing. It is seeing with the eye of faith. It is you in this life, long after Jesus was on earth, who one day, with the eye of faith, see him as a sufficient savior. And consequently, you cry to him for salvation. That's the seeing is referring to. And then, of course, the knowing is experiential knowledge. Or what we often refer to in evangelical circles as a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, you've not only seen him with an eye of faith as the sufficient savior, but upon calling upon him to save you, he also saves you. So you know him in a saving way. You know him. What is he saying there? He is telling us that no one who continues to live in sin has really seen Jesus in this sense. Has really known Jesus in this sense. No one. Not even you. If you are continuing to live in sin, then know this. Your eye of faith has never seen Jesus Christ. You've never experienced him in this knowing way as a savior. You've never done that. You are still a stranger to Jesus Christ as a savior. A complete stranger to him. Let me ask. Have you faced these two impossibilities squarely placed before you? Have you faced them? Have you looked at them and said, yes, I was once in this category. My life proved I was in this category. I loved sin. I lived for sin. The purpose for my life was to drink in sin. I was a law in myself. What I wanted to do, I did. It didn't matter what God said. I didn't know Jesus Christ. I didn't. I didn't abide in him. I didn't see him with the eye of faith. He was some story I read about in the Bible. But now, it's different. I know him. I've seen him with the eye of faith. I've experienced the power of his salvation. 
And now something in me just hates sin, abhors sin. I don't want sin. I want to live for him. And if I ever fall into it, I'm broken. I'm crushed. I come running back to the foot of the cross for cleansing from sin. I'm asking, have you faced this reality, this question? Have you done so? And seen that there is one impossibility. I cannot know him and live in sin. It's impossible. The temptation often is to make ourselves an exception. That's the temptation. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, me, it's different. I'm, I'm a very special, unique case. If you hear that voice, just know it's from the devil. He wants you to think you are a possibility in an impossibility until God himself says to you on the judgment day, you were actually not an exception. You never knew me. You worker of iniquity. Get away from me. Get away from me. Now, brethren, these are the kind of tests of salvation that are embedded in scripture. These are the kinds of tests that we must be using about ourselves. You know, sadly, a lot of people, you ask them, what makes you think you're a Christian? Well, you know, when I pray, he answers. I prayed for a job, and I got a job. Prayed for a husband. I have a husband now. Prayed for children. I now have children. Where in the Bible does it tell you that if God answers your prayer, you are his child. Last week we were learning about Nicodemus, weren't we? Rather, Cornelius. The angel said to him, your prayers have arrived in heaven, Cornelius. God has heard your prayers. And then the next sentence was what? Go and look for Peter to preach to you the message by which you should be saved. In other words, you're not saved. You still need to be saved. Call for Peter to come and preach the gospel to you. I had a problem. God solved it for me, so I must be his child. No! A thousand times, no! The proof of salvation must begin with the kind of God who is there. He's a moral God, an upright God, a holy God, a thrice holy God. And then we ask ourselves the question, if he sent his son into the world to come and demolish sin, how come I'm still living in sin and I claim to belong to him? How come? Clearly, it must be pointing that I am not. Because sin contradicts Christ's mission. It's a real contradiction. The two cannot be together. You are either living in sin and are going to hell, or you are living in Christ and you've had an immoral transformation. It's one or the other. So what's your conclusion about yourself today? What's your conclusion? In the light of this, in the light of the last one week in your life, what's your conclusion? Again, 
don't try and make yourself an exception. Don't say, well, I think it was just a bad patch. You know, it happens to everybody. But now that I've listened to this message, I'll just make sure that I, I don't sleep up. No. If you are living in sin, know that you are not a Christian. Even if you are a member of Kabwata Baptist Church, if you are living in sin, comfortably drinking in sin behind closed doors, be assured that that is proof enough you don't abide in Jesus Christ, you've never seen him with the eye of faith, you don't know Jesus Christ in a saving way. You're still on your way to hell. That's what he's saying. Pastor Svali or myself may have baptized you into this pool. Doesn't mean anything. If you are still living in sin. And therefore, with all the love in my heart, the plea I would make to you is, if you are living in sin, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Plead with him to save you. Say to him, I've prayed before, but my heart has not experienced a moral change. Your word has shown me that if you had really, really saved me, I would not be continuing in sin. Whether it's private or public, I would not be doing it. Therefore, Lord, save me and save me now. You see, the tragedy in most people is to think like this. That my hypocrisy is simply because I know about it. Everybody else must be like that. Everybody else. They may be looking holy on Sunday, but I'm quite sure that what I do in secret, they also do in secret. I want to say to you, don't believe that lie. Jesus actually saves. He does. He actually changes human hearts. He does. He transforms people. Now, he does. People who loved sin begin to hate it, to fight it, not only in themselves, but also in others. He does. Don't believe the lie that everybody is a hypocrite. Don't. Otherwise, on the judgment day, you will discover that there were real Christians next to you who were really served, but you were not. So I want to say, don't believe the lie. If this message has found you out today, where you are, as we'll be closing, pray with all earnestness. Jesus, save me and save me now.